State of Digital Publishing is a publication and community for digital publishing and media professionals in new media and technology. In this second season episode, we speak with Andrew Haig, CEO and founder of GroundSource, about the state of community journalism. GroundSource enables community-based organizations to build authentic, two-way conversations with their stakeholders via mobile. Let's begin. Hi, Andrew. How are you? Great. How are you, Vahe? Nice to connect. Likewise. I really am excited about speaking about GroundSource and what you guys are doing as well because you've been covered a bit this year, particularly with some work that you've been doing with Childbeat and other other different um, engagement and audience loyalty projects. So just before we jump into that specifically, I'd love to just pass it over to you, just if you can give a background about yourself and, and, and ground source in general, that'd be awesome. Sure, yeah, so I come out of a long career in journalism. I've been a journalist in, in journalism since the late 90s. I started in public broadcasting uh, in the States um, as a reporter, and I also wrote for The Economist for a number of years as a correspondent. Uh, out of the Midwest of the United States. And then in 2003, co-founded something called the Public Insight Network, which is a really a, a pioneering crowdsourcing platform. Built four newsrooms, really where I saw technology going and, and uh, our work as journalists was becoming, was speeding up more and more. Uh, and we were being asked to do more and more things from blogging to taking pictures to filing for, well, to sharing on social and other things. And uh, I felt like, the connection with the audience was starting to break down and we were more and more dependent on other people, on, on other organizations and institutions and, and people and influencers, news agendas, instead of doing the work ourselves. And it felt like technology had a role to play in better connecting newsrooms to audiences. So I, I helped uh, found and run uh, the Public Insight Network for about a decade. And then in, through that work and you know really helping create and advance the field of audience engagement and journalism, saw a need and saw an opportunity to translate engagement to mobile and specifically to the most ubiquitous and lowest barrier to entry form of uh, mobile technology, which of course is texting. Yes. And uh, really, really saw texting as an incredible um, channel for connecting with audiences and communities in a very broad-based and inclusive way and one that's also lightweight and conversational. So for the past six years have been building ground source and really learning the context in which it works really well and, and uh, kind of doubling down on in, in those areas where we feel like it's working well and then uh, refining it and of course building the company and uh, and learning from our customers and from the, and the broader kind of industry about kind of the, the need and the business imperatives around audience engagement and listening. Sure. What, what was the light bulb moment where you actually thought, now I can double down on actually focusing on mobile texting? So there's, there's been a couple of light bulb moments. One, uh, I was part of a project in Detroit that was a bit of an experiment. And we went out into a part of Detroit called Mexican Town, which is a southwest Detroit uh, neighborhood. And uh, we had learned uh, through some research that there were large trucks um, we call them semi-trucks, but big kind of 18-wheel trucks mm. being routed through this uh, residential neighborhood of Detroit. And, and down residential streets and kind of belching diesel smoke and, and creating safety issues for the neighborhood children and, for, and also health issues. And really felt like that was a problem that 
uh, needed more attention. And instead of doing the standard approach of, uh, you know, in addition, I should say, to doing the standard approach of writing stories about it or getting the local media outlets to write stories about it, we decided to encourage the community to text in whenever they saw a truck being routed down one of their streets. And a lot of people in the community did that. And that, in part, led to a series of stories on uh, on the routing of trucks to that neighborhood. And it ended up getting the company that was kind of behind us to reroute the trucks, but also donate a quarter million dollars to the community for childhood health. And it, to me, the light bulb was that you could have more impact as a journalist sometimes by getting people engaged than you can by writing a single story. So I, I felt like um, it was one of the one of the moments in my journalism career where, I, where my work had a lot of impact, and I, I didn't even write one sentence of of copy for a story, and that really intrigued me about like how do we give communities the tools to help identify the issues and concerns that really matter to them, and how do we help them connect those concerns to the work of journalism such that we can cover communities better. So that was it was really to me a journalistic insight that led to Ground Source. And then seeing where mobile was going and the ubiquity of text messaging, this is six years ago now, um, kind of pre-WhatsApp becoming very popular, uh, really felt like there was a business opportunity here to, to create a way for newsrooms to directly connect audiences through texting. So that was one light bulb moment. The other light bulb moment, recently a newspaper in Seattle, uh, the Seattle Times, um, has been using our platform for a while. And they their environmental reporter has been covering these orca whales who have been living off the coast of Seattle or occasionally residing off the coast of Seattle uh, in the Puget Sound. And um, the, for various reasons, these whales have just captivated the city of Seattle and people are very curious about them and their, their, their behavior and their health and a lot of things about them. So this reporter decided to create a texting club where she, as she went out in the field and covered these whales and, and took pictures of them and, and, got uh, a sense of how they were doing, that she would text directly with the audience about what she's learning, including pictures and research and other things that help kind of add context to it. And it's been a real hit. About 1,500 people, actually more than that, have signed up to get these texting alerts from this reporter. And they, uh, uh, the, the retention rate over the course of six, seven months has been 94, 95%. And people text back routinely to her with questions. And um, and even with more than that, just the reactions. And it's it's uh, it's shown us that the the power of texting. Yes, there's power in gathering information and, and gathering context about communities and uh, asking people to share their perspectives through texting. That's powerful. But uh, you know, as a it, texting provides an incredible channel for developing and cultivating loyalty and turning. Uh, the audience uh, into turning audiences into fans and kind of brand ambassadors by experiencing a, a dr more direct connection with reporters or, or the, the news organizations that they trust. So that's that. In addition to a bunch of other um, uses of the platform, have taught us and shown us that the power of what we're building is as a loyalty platform, a platform for helping news organizations and other kind of brands develop loyalty and brand ambassadorship by creating a direct uh, conversational two-way connection with 
their customers, their audiences. So that's that's uh, you know a couple light bulb moments. I feel like I'm I'm having light bulb moments every every week, but those are the ones that stand out. Yeah, definitely that more of that entrepreneurial side of you always is looking for that light bulb moment and that continuing iteration. But said I guess a few times that you you know, the main keywords you mentioned were around how this was a platform where you know you grow the audience loyalty. Uh, we can grow a loyal audience. So, I mean, generally speaking, on a new platform or generally like an existing channel like texting, what do you define? Is there a number you base that on that you know that you have a loyal audience or how do you quantify or qualify having a loyal audience on a channel like this? Because, I mean, I remember myself personally when, Back in the day, um, maybe in the early 2000s, where a, a lot of text mar- message, mar- SMS marketing was used to sort of blast out messages, and you know people would just either sign up just to keep up to date. But does that did that quantify as loyalty? Maybe, maybe not. So I'd, I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think that as we've looked around, and even as we're starting ground source, there were you know plenty of texting companies out there already. But as you said, as you indicated, there are almost to a company designed for mass outbound texting uh, of the kind that you kind of mentioned. And where I've always seen the potential for texting is as a, as a inherently two-way channel. Uh, one where if you're going to be present in that channel as a brand, you need to be prepared and in fact, encourage people to text back to you. Uh, and I think that people are very hungry to do that in the right context and with the right brands and news organizations that they trust. And the thing about texting, uh, which is you know rather obvious, is that there's no, unlike email, there's no filters or labels, labels or folders that you can that you can send email to, so it doesn't hit your main inbox and interrupt you. Like if someone texts you, it's going to get your attention 99 percent of the time, and usually, typically, within a few seconds of receiving that text. So if you if you aren't using that channel correctly, um, you know your turn rate will be really high. But also um, that uh, allows us basically to look at these retention rates of 94, 95, 96% on a lot of our projects and say this, you know, the, the, the vast majority of those people are loyal in the sense that they're allowing those texts to buzz their phone every time they go out. So that's, that's one, one strong indication of loyalty. The other is the degree, the percentage, the, the extent to which they respond when asked to do so. So uh, one of our clients, the radio show that has a ten, uh, about a 10,000 person texting club. And when they do call out for questions for their show or for perspectives on a topic that, that day or that week, they will get sometimes thousands of responses, you know, upwards of 20, 30% response rates. And that is, an, is yet another sign of not just texting's power, kind of the directness and the immediacy and the intimacy of it, but also you know that feeling like you've you're you are in conversation with a radio host that you really like or with a reporter who's reporting you appreciate and trust and that's just a very unusual experience and social is for many news organizations you know they they treat social the way they treat broadcast it's a it's a place to distribute their content and the degree to which people engage with that content or comment on it is kind of ancillary to them increasing the number of clicks and eyeballs that they have for any piece of content. 
And uh, with the economics of eyeballs and clicks deteriorating rapidly and the vast majority of the value of clicks and eyeballs being sucked up by you know, Google and Facebook, that you know, in, we in news media, but also beyond that, anyone who's in a, who's, who's acts like a publisher or is a publisher needs to think about loyalty and how you earn people's attention and, and maintain it apart and beyond from just getting people to click on stuff. Absolutely. It's curious. I'm curious to know as well, though, how does, I guess, text-based um, audience loyalty compared to something like dark social? Because that's become, and we've, we've seen Facebook's recent announcement around their pivot towards encouraging more group chats and conversations with the relaunch of Messenger and, and everything else. So how do you compare ground source with, with those type of activities? Yeah, so I, I would say that ground source is a, the, for the right brands and the right organizations is a really strong complement to, to those kinds of activities. Any act on social, even if it's in a private group, is essentially an act of performance. I mean, it's maybe an act of sharing information, but there's always a, a status check associated with it. You know, I, is, is what I'm sharing here increasing my status or my reputation? I mean, it, it, you know, people are also altruistic, so they'll, they'll also share information with each other. But there are a lot of contexts in which people don't really want to be in yet another group. They don't want to necessarily share something publicly, but if asked and if given the right one-to-one connection and channel, they will share something that they that they are genuinely feeling and they want to connect around without the anxiety of being exposed publicly or being kind of vulnerable to other people's comments. And so that's, that's one uh, kind of more social kind of psychological aspect that, that this one-to-one form of messaging that's very direct it just it feels much more authentic, and it's it's less it's it, it makes you less vulnerable to the kinds of things that can happen on social. And then the other piece of it is really manageability. Um, so, and and the control over that uh, your connection with that group of people that you have on social. So, you know, even though you can build a fan base on Facebook and and Twitter and other platforms, really what you're doing is building that community for Facebook to monetize. I mean, you, you get the benefit of the interaction and to some extent of that engagement with your brand and with your, with your content. But the degree to which you have any control over your connection with the audience is really dependent on the algorithms of Facebook and, and at some level how much you want to spend to basically reach for your, to reach the fans that you've, the fan base that you've built. And there's always that, that threat and it's continuously reinforce that Facebook and to some extent Twitter will change the algorithms or something something will happen to the underlying algorithms or how the platform works that will kind of pull the carpet out from under you. So they're always pivoting to this, that, or the other thing, you know, pivoting to video, away from video, pivoting to private, whatever that means, and, and away from it. So there's, whereas texting and these forms of communication give you that direct access that there's no intermediary deciding whether or not you reach that person. And you can sustain that over time and have control over that relationship. And it's quite manageable in the sense that um, you can segment that group. You can you can kind of build lists of people. You can engage people at, at different levels of of granularity. Yeah. So I think you know if, you know given the right 
environment. It's a really strong complement to those kinds of um, that kind of engagement. And in some cases where you know people don't like where you're reaching out to new communities, you're building connections with new people, new audiences. It may be uh, a better alternative to you know, groups or Facebook groups or those kinds of things. Absolutely. Um, and I mean, I think you've painted the picture in terms of what the current state is around developing audience loyalty, but um, in terms of looking at it in the frame, in the lens of community development, uh, particularly with journalists who are trying to get that bead, or like you said, it's more about the audience engagement to get their feedback on, on stories or, or topics or issues. Um, can you go more into detail around what the state of play is that what the state of play is at the moment? I know you, we spoke about uh, so dark social like group messaging and stuff, but just in, in terms of the broader context, what are some of the things that journalists or you know or, or news publications or even local news publications? Because I think you guys are focusing more around the local uh, news outlets. Uh, um, what are some of the current challenges they're facing in in trying to develop that audience loyalty into community development that's going to help them yeah stories. yeah so I, I think a big one that um i'm talking to a lot of uh news organizations about specifically but beyond that as well is is tightening or linking tightening the linkage between um audience engagement with the, which is increasingly perceived as a necessary part necessary component of audience development and, you know, and, and working inside a news organization. And, you know, we can debate, talk about what engagement means. You know, I, I think it means a lot more than just the time you spend on a web page. I think it means um, you're somehow moving from being a passive recipient of information to actually interacting with, with the news organization or with the content or with the reporters or the journalists. Um, so I think there's a growing consensus that for for many reasons, not least of which is that you know the average person scrolls through about 300 feet of feeds a day, and that's a stat actually from Facebook. So you know you you're spending much of the day on your phone, flicking through feeds, and at the end of the day, you may say to you know turn to your significant other or your friend and say, hey, I was just reading about this thing, and isn't it interesting? And they ask you where you read it, and you know chances are. Sometimes you forget, and sometimes you don't have any clue about where that content came from. Um, Absolutely, in the sense that you know, content is just out there, kind of free flowing, and we're we're consuming it, we're absorbing it like we do water or you know, or oxygen, and um, we don't necessarily know where it came from. And in that context, it's really hard to to sustain a relationship with an individual audience member um, if they don't know where the content's coming from. So if it's not just strictly content you're distributing if you have to do more than that then i then it's then you get to the question of like what more can we do other than just put information out in the world and i think the answer to that is engagement and that can take lots of different shapes and forms but i think the real challenge then so you know engagement could mean planning events engagement could mean asking your readers for the questions and answering those questions it could mean taking polls. I mean, it, has, it can take lots of different forms, or it could mean texting or or emailing. Um, but then the question is, how do you, you know, if at the end of the day we're running businesses here, even if you're a nonprofit news organization, you've got to make ends meet and you've got to pay the bill. So how do you connect 
you know, if the economics are no longer around scale and how many people are clicking on stuff, but more around how engaged, you know, sm smaller, more engaged, more deeply engaged communities, how then do you translate that engagement into money? I think that's the, that's the big challenge right now. Um, and my sense is, and that other industries, and you know, I'm sure people in, in your audience have a far better sense of that than journalism does, probably because you know, you, you know, corporations think about customer retention, and and that there's a strong engagement component to you know retaining customers. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where the data the data aren't there yet, and the logic isn't isn't fully baked yet to help to to kind of link that that definition of audience engagement with with revenue. And so then you get into the into the weeds, into the discussions around, okay, are are we gonna buy a CRM, a customer relationship management tool? Are we gonna buy a CRM that's designed for sales and, and kind of hack it for as an audience relationship tool? How do we know, how do we track conversion rates given these different channels um, and different opportunities to engage? And so I, you know it's just it's a more complicated web of things that that museums have to put together. But it's absolutely the foundation upon which I believe future, you know, successful future media uh, brands and brands that kind of treat and think of themselves as publishers or act like publishers will be built. And I think that's also really an interesting opportunity for, for tool builders and platform builders is to build this audience revenue and audience engagement stack. Whereas, you know, if, you, if you've ever seen one of those charts of all the different advertising of the advertising tech stack it's crazy how many dozens and dozens thousands of companies have cropped up you know they create you know advertising exchanges and arbitrage and all those little urls that that pop up at the lower left hand of your screen when you load a news website yeah. all these platforms sitting in between you between the news organization and the and the audience and they're siphoning off dollars and they're supposedly delivering money back to the news organization but the, that money is, is diminishing. So there's an interesting opportunity now to develop, kind of either develop new technologies that really serve this audience revenue and audience engagement um, need, or to use existing tools in ways that, in, in new ways that help link, you know, real kind of genuine engagement, what I would call genuine engagement with revenue. So I think that's, and that's the opportunity that we're, that we're really hoping to embrace as we move to become more of a loyalty service versus information or news gathering service. Uh, and I think that's, you know, just, I think it was yesterday, two days ago, reading that MailChimp is, is moving beyond, well beyond simply being an email provider. Yeah, a full-on marketing platform with audience segmentation and targeting and uh, CRM and all these different components, putting them pretty much directly in competition with, you know, Salesforce and, Looking at other tools like HubSpot, it's like it's like there's some really in, interesting kind of trends in those areas where these companies that started off as you know kind of like simple communications platforms are evolving into a full full-on marketing suite. Um, and I think we may not end up as a full marketing suite, but we're certainly taking on attributes of a marketing platform with the ability to integrate with these other tools like Mailchimp and Salesforce. So I guess, I guess from what I from what I hear from you saying is that I guess uh, audience development professionals or journalists are, are competing for priorities in in trying to increase their engagement. But and then the way that 
uh, tech companies are responding is, is trying to create a full ecosystem whereby they can try to, try to do that and, and, and try to reduce that friction with, with the audience members, I guess. Would you say that um, tech platforms are trying to create more of an ecosystem or, or uh, as well, um, in addition to, like you're saying, to create that solution, um, you know, I guess creating a solution for them? Yeah, I mean, it, it's uh, a couple things. Reducing the friction for the audience, people in the audience. Um, yeah. Also, you know, the number of platforms you have to log into as a publisher you know, I, it would be interesting to survey your audience and see how many, just the, strictly the number of platforms they log into on a daily or weekly basis. But it's got to be, you know, I don't know, 10, 10 or more, depending on what level of the organization they're at. And if you can simply log into MailChimp and, and take care of a lot of that targeting and segmentation and, and uh, you know, audience or, you know, um, subscriber um, uh, relationship management, and reduce the friction on your end, plus potentially the cost as well. It makes sense there. And if you're on the audience side, I think the what's really interesting on the audience side to me is that we're, you know, we seem to be moving with GDPR and, and a lot of the privacy standards being set and GDPR being to some extent a, a, a kind of a baseline, I think, going forward, is that we're, I think, going to be increasingly moving into an opt-in culture versus one where, we simply drop a pixel on a page and track someone around the internet and, and kind of create these really rich demographic profiles that, you know, the person on the other end of that equation, i.e. the audience member has no idea how much information you know about them. I don't, you know, that's not going away necessarily, but I do think that we're increasingly moving to a world where we need to be transparent with our audience members, our communities, even our customers about, you know, what information we've gathered on them and giving them the opportunity to know like to to see that information, but also to um, maybe to uh, adjust what the company or the brand knows about them. Yeah. Um, and I, so I think you know the more the more we can these platforms, whether it's Mailchimp or others, give organizations the power to take control of their relationship with their audience and take that control away from the kind of duopolistic tech giants. I think the better, and that gives us, you know, because essentially what we've been doing today is handing over our communities and our audiences and those relationships in order for them to monetize it because they can do all the targeting, et cetera, um, and, and putting those powers in our hands and publishers' hands and, and you know, and being able to have more control over our own, our own kind of economic destinies as pub publishers and brands versus handing that control over to the social giants and, the, and, the, and, and Google. How do how do publishers do compete with prioritizing what solution to use or what tool to use? I mean, I know, I mean, particularly with Groundsource, it's 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 very it's a very unique way of solving an audience engagement problem. But like you've got text messaging as one way, you've got this other platform as another way, you've got this other one as another way. So how do they, from your perspective, compete? one that's going to help them. I, I know we have to take it as a holistic approach, but again, there's so much out there, right? Like you said, um, ad tech space is growing significantly, and I know that there's an infographic that showed that there's 7,000 ad tech market companies that have popped up since the past few years. So how do they prioritize? Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I think you hinted at it, and I think this is, you know, 
I'm not a publisher, but I, I, I talk to them a lot. I talk to news organizations a lot. Um, it comes down to really um, meeting your audiences and your communities where they're at and allowing them to connect on the channels of their preference and making that quite seamless across channels. So I think it, it's really dependent on you understanding who your audience is, who you're serving, what their preferences are in terms of communication, what you want out of that relationship and what they want out of that relationship. And then I think it's choosing the technologies to engage them accordingly. And then I think, of course, cost comes into play. And, you know, where what we've, you know, known for some time is that, you know, texting is compared to, quote unquote, the, 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 the quote unquote free nature of kind of social media is, is expensive, but also it, it activates and converts at a, at a far higher rate than any other channel. And it, um, you know, it, there's, it's unparalleled, in my opinion, in its ability to enable the brand or the news organization to take the pulse of their community and, and to actually be in conversation with them to understand what they need and understand what their preferences are. So I think it's a, it, then it's a matter of being able to connect the efficacy of this channel with with the with the revenue. Um, so then I think you need to be like you you just need to be very cognizant of what what kinds of engagements, what kinds of opportunities to engage, um, and what channels convert at what rates. And I think that's where not having that full text stack in place, it's really hard to track and connect the dots between, you know, an audience member who may come to your website a number of times a month, who may also do some other things, maybe shows up at events, may have also commented on a few stories, may have also texted in to know all those things at once and then to be able to connect the dots between them in order to say, hey, this person has all the attributes of, you know, a super fan or someone who who will convert to subscriber. So let's give them a special opportunity in the channel of their preference. I think that's the holy grail as I talk to publishers is being able to have a holistic view of their audience yeah. and to be able to control their relationship with that audience in a way that kind of take control of that audience either back from the social giants or to kind of develop that control from the from the outset. And then to be able to measure uh, at a very granular level conversion rates and activation rates. Um, across those channels. So that's uh, it's a kind of a general answer to your question, but that's, that's, I think that's how publishers are thinking through it. Yeah, I think I think you clearly laid out the thought process. Andrew, I'm out, of your, out of your experience, both as a journalist and, and from what you're seeing as well, to get to that holy grail where you're seeing that full view, and then also to see that with ground source, how long do you think it usually takes to get to that point? Uh, I know every over, Every organization is different, setup is different. That's obviously going to impact the change management and, and, and to be able to get the implementation and execution. But is, I mean, do you think if everyone was on the same page, it, it, it wouldn't take too long to happen? How long do you think that should happen or take realistically? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I've been watching, uh, you know, uh, one organization, the Texas Tribune, is, is uh, kind of well known at being very strategic and very smart about how they make their their choice, you know, how they choose their technologies and how they track conversion rates. Seattle Times is another that does a really great job of tracking what converts people to subscribers. So I think if you have the right leadership in place, it can be very 
rapid. It can, it can, uh, I would say if you, if you have the right leadership in place, i.e. someone or some people, uh, a team of people who are very focused about developing opportunities for the audience to, to engage are taking a very audience centric and, uh, approach to, to developing new products and they're working across functions. I think the, the organizations where it will take a long time, in fact, it probably will never happen, are organizations where the, the quote-unquote business side and editorial sides are quite siloed and even maybe distrustful of one another. It's this, the, the mindset and the, the, the kind of work that's required to, 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 to succeed in this area in, in kind of linking engagement, audience engagement and listening with higher conversion rates and sustaining the business side just requires that marketing technology, kind of the business side, the editorial side, the technology side, they all have to be at the same table kind of creating those products as a kind of holistic package such that the marketing piece is in integral to the editorial piece and that the technologies are being chosen wisely given, given the, the audience and you understand the audience. I think if you have the right leaders in place and you can put a team like that in place, you can develop highly engaged products that convert at a high rate and be able to track that, you know, very, very quickly. But I think it comes down to who the leaders are. And, you know, even if you're in a legacy media organization, I've seen a number of legacy media organizations, you know, you're going to, it's going to take, you know, five, maybe 10 years if you want to change the entire organization and try to convert it into one that's actually more nimbly. And even that is a really, a big struggle. Um, and unless you're like at the scale of like the LA times or Washington post and New York times, and you've got a lot of money and very large audiences, they can make those transitions because they can invest in R and D and, and new product development and, and take some risks. But if you're a, a smaller legacy operation, I think the better bet is to create new products that are kind of, are kind of protected from being threatened by the, the, the culture of the, the legacy organization and almost like in a skunk work sense, you know, a, a, a studios and agencies within the larger organization to create new products that are fully engaged, that are kind of holistically planned from the technology, the marketing, the business side, and are rolled out in a very agile and iterative fashion. But if you have the leadership in place and that structure, that team in place, it can happen right away. No, that makes sense, Andrew. And I think we could speak about a lot of this um, we can, you can even have a whole podcast around organizational change and, and challenges around that. But Andrew, I'd, I'd really love to now jump into, let, let's go into the nitty gritty, let's go to some case studies, um, just so that people who are listening to this, if they wanted to take a look at audience uh, loyalty on the local context or however um, we can use text messages as a platform, Let's let's give them some case studies to go away with and 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 some examples. So the first one I want to I, I want to just uh, allude on one, and then I'd love to then pass it to you once we go through this one on any other ones that you want to know. I know we went through one earlier in our conversation, but um, there was one that um, a news piece that was fairly well received in our in the community um, around how chalkbeat there was an integration with chalkbeat. And how that was used with ground source to for I think a development based organization and how that covered um, uncovered news and insights. Can we can we start with that one? Sure. Uh, the only issue with that one is I I uh, I wasn't as involved in it in the planning and execution of it. So I you know uh, I have 
kind of higher level information about it, but sure. I could definitely talk to it. So Chalkbeat is an uh, is a relatively new digital news organization with multiple bureaus throughout the United States that focuses on education, mainly uh, higher level news around education policy and and as a result, you know, a lot of their, their audience is primarily comprised of kind of influencers around education and to some extent teachers. But they, they realized that one, you know, substantial group of people that they weren't really reaching as parents. And given that they're education-focused organization, that felt like a real um, opportunity and a gap in their audience. So what they did, what we did with Chalkbeat is they they actually acquired a list of phone numbers in Detroit using a vendor that we've used before and, and a, a vendor that is an ethical vendor of, of a, a kind of list, a list marketing platform or service. And they, uh, of, of people in certain zip codes of Detroit, and they created a pretty lengthy survey to understand their needs and they, uh, and to, to get a better understanding of what families preferences and needs were around education. And through that, learn a great deal about parents and specifically with regards to transiency, why, why kids were changing schools quite a bit. And uh, it's, a, it's a form of, or it's, a, it's an approach using ground source that we've done in a few places and, and we call it Pulse. But basically it's using texting as a way to, as a very lightweight way to check in with a group of people, understand their information needs, and to help tune attune the news organization to the needs of that that audience. Now, like I said, I'm not I wasn't as deeply involved in the detail kind of like that's okay. role out of that project, but but I know they they were they reached about a hundred parents and they were able to stay in touch with them over the course of a number of weeks and through conversation with them revealed a lot of a lot of really enlightening and some extent surprising insights about how they were, why kids were changing schools and, um, and their underlying information needs around education. So again, it kind of gets to that, like, how do we know, you know, every news organization, every publisher has to contend with the question of like, what information does my audience want or need? I mean, as a podcaster, I'm sure you, sure you think about that a lot. Like what, you know, you, you can see the numbers of people downloading the podcast. You can see the number of people hitting your webpage. You don't necessarily know if you're meeting people's information needs, and to some extent, there's there's this this kind of black box of you know how the audience is inter- is interacting with the comment of the, the content, and to what extent they're they're you know it's satisfying their needs. And I and the very straightforward way of of answering that question is is to ask them. Um, and I think texting provides a really like lightweight, low barrier way to connect with audiences and to just genuinely ask them about their information needs. So we've done a few projects like that where, where we call them uh, Paul. We call it Pulse, which is it's more of a, like an information needs uh, assessment or you know understanding ascertainment use of, of texting. So yeah, that's and they they've they've gone on to to kind of replicate some of that work in other markets and with other uh, populations and are finding a lot of success using it. And I think one thing that's one interesting thing about this project and others like it. Is that you know we're talking about a hundred people here. We're not talking about a hundred thousand. And I think journalists get very uncomfortable when thinking about creating projects or you know with 
with small groups of people. There's an underlying kind of baked in assumption to what we do in media that it's mass media that we're supposed to be distributing and broadcasting to very, you know, ideally to very large audiences. So when you get down to uses of technology and, and engagement that are reaching a hundred people or a thousand people, it, it's like, well, that doesn't seem like that many people. But when, when it's being used to dial into a community's interests or needs, that is an, an incredible connection. And even with a hundred people, you can unearth insights that can totally transform how you serve your much larger audience. So it's the kind of it's again more of the kind of work I would like to see a lot more of, more of more work on the part of publishers to kind of generally reach out to communities and audiences to understand their information needs before they invest all kinds of time and money in building products that are effectively designed to meet people's information needs, but are really are based on you know like six or seven editors sitting around the table saying, "Well, wouldn't it be interesting if we did this? Like, what if the audience was sitting at the table with them?" So I think that's kind of an answer to that that question of like giving the audience or the public a seat at the table. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you for summarizing summarizing that um, a use case versus simply what are some other use cases that have been um, Yeah, so um, the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is a newspaper in, in Philadelphia, they recently did an experiment or a pilot with texting around the, the midterm elections here in the States and invited their audience to engage with their one of their political reporters to get updates about different issues throughout the week, throughout the months leading up to the election. And each week, the reporter, his name is Jonathan Lai, would text out um, very engaging, kind of emoji-rich, like very conversational and personable kind of text message with a theme uh, around the theme. And you know that one, one week's theme could be education, another healthcare. And it would kind of in a kind of branching kind of choose your own adventure fashion, you could learn about different aspects of, of the kinds of um, the policy uh, positions and proposals of the different candidates involved in the election. And, um, you know, about the, again, a, a smaller scale project um, meant to teach them something, but about four or 500 people engaged with that content and stayed, you know, the you know, 85, 90% of them stayed involved throughout the course of that. Uh, I think it was a two or three month, maybe less than that, one or two month um, pilot. And uh, a, a, the majority of the people involved in that um, project were already subscribers. But a number of those who weren't subscribers already became subscribers explicitly because of that texting experience. So again, these are like indicators that there's something very powerful here and that people really appreciate given the right opportunity to be in conversation with, you know, news organizations and brands that they trust. And that, you, you know, the, by engaging them in that conversation, there is a high likelihood that you'll be able to convert at least some of them into supporters, subscribers, and members, you know, by giving them that access and by giving them that conversational engagement. Can you list uh, maybe without going to, to uh, without going to other examples in detail? Can you list a few other use cases that people can uh, for for to give people for few sorry to give people food for thought? Sure. So we've worked with uh, some podcasts, and uh, during the podcast, they'll they'll encourage listeners to text in, and they can get uh, images um, or 
or even short videos texted back to them. So the podcast host might say, hey, to see a picture of me and that person I was just talking to, uh, text, um, text this keyword or text my name to this phone number, and then they'll get back a picture. And, um, and, uh, and through that process, and this, this podcast in particular developed a, a subscriber base or a texting subscriber base of about 18,000 people who they could text back and forth with. Nice. And then they built two entire bonus episodes of the podcast with feedback from that community. So that's a, that's a great one in podcasts. Um, you know, there are a number of radio programs are using it to create texting clubs as a way to, you know, we're all used to the call, the call in radio show. Uh, in one case, the, the show 1A, which is a national radio show out of Washington, D.C. They don't have any call-ins, but they do have um, to give the, the ability to people to text in like the day before a program to, to ask questions that can be asked of their, their guests or to suggest program uh, topics. That's another one. And um, there are a number of projects that have used it to use texting to reach out to communities that are under, you know, historically underserved by media and to build conversation and even potentially distrustful of media. Uh, so one called 100 Days in Appalachia built a community of hundreds of high school students throughout Appalachia to understand their political preferences and to understand the kind of underlying attitudes and thoughts about politics and, and elections. And um, we're able to surface very nuanced, very kind of a rich portrait of how high school students in Appalachia were thinking through those things. Um, so again, you know, as a, as a as a channel or a tool to reach out to communities that are historically left out of the conversation, again, very effective. Has there been? Um, sorry, I guess one more question on, on use cases. Has there been any other way? Like I've, when I've spoken with other local news publishers or media organiza news organizations, they've used uh, government statistics or data to then draw insights from that. Have has there been? in such case where maybe they've used that as an initial point and then validated that idea through the local community? Or do you think that there's any way to marry the two together? Yeah, so there's a project called Bellwether um, that's used texting in, they use texting in, in Ohio and part of Illinois in the run-up to the uh, the midterm elections, yeah. which is the presidential election, I think both. And basically what they did, and it was kind of to, to that question of, you know, that I think especially in the States, but I think it's probably the case globally, that poll-driven uh, political coverage, kind of horse race coverage, quote-unquote, um, is, is leaving a lot of people not only dissatisfied, but uh, frankly kind of distrustful of political news coverage. And, um, and increasingly, polls have been kind of weaponized by different political parties uh, in different ways. So people, people who are answering the polls know are... are accustomed to answering questions on behalf of their team, you know, whichever political party that they're affiliated with, knowing that polls are, are used as, as weapons. And so, uh, you know, how do we how do we really truly understand how people are thinking through political issues in ways that will actually uh, inform and shape their voting? Um, and so Bellwether recruited groups, small groups of people um, reflective of different political backgrounds and beliefs and and race, races and ethnicities um, in in very kind of geographically focused areas, and then throughout the course of you know however many weeks it was up, up until the election, would ask them kind of open-ended questions uh, week in week out to understand you know again given its name bellwether you know how their sentiments 
were changing given news events or given debates and that sort of thing. And I think that's that's got a lot of potential to augment polling, certainly not to replace it, but to kind of create a more uh, a richer, more qualitatively rich uh, and authentic way to understand voter sentiment. Funny. So the key is is this for augmentation, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's really good to note again. Andrew, so this let's look let's look ahead now. So, how do you think the landscape is going to play out, particularly, and, and I guess where does ground source sort of see in that landscape moving forward? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so we we really see ourselves. I mean, we started off working a lot with SMS, but we never have. Uh, uh, I've never thought of us as an SMS company. I've always thought of us as a relationships company or increasingly a loyalty company. Yeah. Um, and and what we're, you know, we'll be increasingly doing, kind of as WhatsApp opens up their business API and and other conversational channels become available, we'll be, you know, become become an omni-channel uh, engagement or loyalty platform that allows organizations to connect with people based on their their uh, channel of preference. And that way, you know, uh, again, back to kind of the challenges internally um, with technology to kind of reduce a lot of that friction and give publishers and brands the confidence to be able to engage their audiences on the channel of their preference. So I think that's, that's really exciting. And then connecting it to CRMs and to payment systems like Apple Pay and Google Pay and other payment fulfillment systems and kind of audience segmentation tools like increasingly MailChimp, but also like Adobe. And so to kind of create this suite, be part of this suite of tools that a really enlightened, engaged publisher would use to um, to effectively scale that engagement function in the organization and also and link it directly to conversions, but at the same time, be able to tune in to people qualitatively and understand their needs um, as they're as they're engaging with them. So I think that's that's really, the, I, to me, that's the future of media is developing kind of more niche or focused products around deeply engaged communities and building and building loyalty and trust in the process and converting that directly to kind of monetization, either through subscriptions or memberships. And really, instead of thinking about us as mass, like monolithic mass media, you know, the producing one basic product will become these really multifarious, you know, niche niche editorial product creators, and some of those may be even pop-ups or time like you know two or three months pro- uh, products or projects that will spin up and spin down. But it's a much more dynamic, much more iterative, much more agile, much more audience-centered future that I see for media. At least the media, I feel like it's going to be sustainable long-term. It's interesting some of the products you mentioned, like pop-ups and everything else. How is that going to work? How would that work? Um, and I mean, and to speak to that point, to extend to that point, I guess, um, what are your current plans and, and pipeline at the moment in product development? Yeah, so I think, you know, you're seeing this increasingly pop-up newsletters uh, that, that some news organizations are doing around uh, events or, you, I mean, podcasts are the kind of ultimate pop-up um, content. You know, uh, tr- true crime shows that run for eight or ten episodes and then go away. And I think that really speaks to, you know, there are some organizations, news organizations that you're going to want a lifelong relationship with, potentially, you know, uh, your local broadcaster, your local publisher, um, certain national publications. Uh, but in other cases, um, people are 
kind of looking to build, you know, our, our in, in the same way we kind of binge watch and binge consume kind of Netflix content or the content is, you know, is uh, developing short relationships in short, intense relationships with a program or a host or, or a team around this topic. And then, you know, maybe that, that goes away and maybe something else pops up in its place. So I think we're just starting to see that pop up newsletters and, and of course, podcasts and other kinds of products. But I think that's it's really interesting. And it, and it allows a news organization to strategically spin up pro- products to meet, you know, audience needs and interests, and then to spin them down when they're no longer needed or viable instead of having all these legacy products that's, um, kind of sitting around, some of which may be gathering dust. So I, I don't know. It's, 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 I think we're just starting to see that develop, but I'm really intrigued by it. No, that's the way you explain it as well. It's, it's pretty nice. And, and I think, like, I agree with you on, your, on that point. So where, where, are you, where are you guys sitting at, um, in terms of your, your plans for 2019 and, and product development-wise? So we're we're in the middle of uh, uh, raising a seed funding round. Uh, we've, we're redevelop, redesigning and redeveloping our platform from scratch. We're so mostly done with it. Uh, a lot of it is around um, a, a much cleaner UX, but also an eye towards kind of being deeply integrated with these other technologies we've already been talking about. So we need to close out that round so we can accelerate on that work. And then, you know, as we look forward, we're looking to broaden beyond strictly news organizations. Um, and really focus on working with brands that act like publishers, but also brands that we call uh, community-anchored brands, you know, brands that are in community that really value the input of a community, that engagement with and loyalty with the community, and are, are, are keen and interested in listening to that community's needs and, and serving them through information products, whatever those might be. So it's both a tightening of a focus on loyalty as the underlying uh, challenge or problem or pain point we're solving for organizations, but also then broadening out to brands beyond media. You know, you could think of sports teams or breweries, or there's a, there's a wide range of brands that um, that uh, that we would consider community anchored brands that, in, in in many cases, kind of act increasingly like publishers, like engaged publishers. So that's that's kind of what we're thinking for 2019 and beyond. I hope, I hope um, the seed funding turns up as you planned, and I'm sure it will. And, it will, and we'll, more, we'll be more than happy to cover it as well, like we did with Chalkbeat's news, news um, success as well. So just to close off um, our conversation, Andrew, I'd just love to, and I always ask this to everyone that comes on to the podcast, your one key lesson that you um, you can share with people, whether it might be around your entrepreneurial background or it might be around audience loyalty, I'll leave it to you to just say one lesson that you've learned that you'd love to share with everyone. I, I think the biggest one is to listen, listen more than you talk, to do that personally, but also as a brand and as an organization to be as tuned into and attuned to the needs and, and the concerns and questions and curiosity of the people you're serving and, and to constantly orient and reorient yourself around those around their needs and their concerns um, and to really focus on hospitality and service um, by listening. I think that's the key. That's my key. That's something I'm obsessed with, but I think that's my key insight. Was that natural for you or was that something you had to learn over time? I think I've always valued it as a person. What, how to put it in practice as a professional is, is, is always challenging because um, there's always that tension between 
here's what we built, here's the stuff that we have on offer. So I'm going to go out into the world and try to sell it versus like, what does the world actually need from us right now? Because you can get very locked in to your product that you're selling and the world may be telling you that the product you're selling isn't quite right, but you're, you know, you're sitting there having invested in time and money into the thing that you're selling and you don't want, you're not open to hearing something different. So I think it's partly a matter of like being open to the, the, the possibility that what you're selling into the world is no longer what the world wants to buy effectively, but also keeping yourself nimble and your resources flexible so you can you can adjust course uh, rather quickly and so you don't have to get locked into any one vision of the future that you can, can, you're constantly retuning and tuning yourself into the needs of your the people you're serving. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing those fundamental truths and cover, uh, finishing off the conversation at that point. And thank you for your time. Thanks, Fahey. Thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the State of Digital Publishing podcast. Listen to past and upcoming episodes across all major podcast networks. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and join our community groups. Finally, visit stateofdigitalpublishing.com for premium information, resources, and become a member today. Until next time.